Now I'm joined by Chuck Modi. You are a justice journalist based in D.C. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have seen Chuck's videos over the years covering protests and actions in D.C., police violence, police escalations. Uh, Chuck, you've been a, a good person on the ground to follow for that type of stuff. But thank you so much for joining me. How are you? How's your day going? I'm doing all right, uh, Jordan. First of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. and. Um... You know, just appreciate the opportunity. Anytime um, independent networks could could talk to each other is very important to combat some of the lies that we see on TV and some of the lies we see here from politicians. Absolutely. Let's let's get into that, because last night there were there was an action outside the DNC headquarters where uh, Jewish justice groups led by If Not Now and uh, Jewish Voice for Peace were peacefully demonstrating to call for a ceasefire. And what many people who weren't there or weren't following those groups directly might have seen was an inaccurate representation. And we'll get into the spin that we saw from Democrats and Republicans and in the media. But could you walk us through what led up to that escalation and that violence? How did this start? This was a candlelight vigil at the beginning, correct? Yes, it was a candlelight vigil at the beginning. And it wasn't at DNC headquarters, though there was some of that there as well. So you had a, a large vigil and it was a beautiful vigil. I have to say, you know, hundreds of candles were put down for so many um, lives that had been lost. It was interfaith while it was uh, led by predominantly Jewish organizations, as you mentioned, Jewish Voice for Peace. And if not now, there were Christian ministers speaking, there were imams speaking, multi-faith service with a, a common message. And that message was whatever our faith is, what is unifying is that we all agree on the sanctity of life, that all life is equal, all life is precious, nobody's life is superior than anyone else's life. A Palestinian child is just as valuable as an Israeli child, as, as any Jewish child. So this was a common message. It was that kind of vibe. It was very touching. Um, there were songs. And this was the vibe and the march that after that vigil that left to DNC to meet others at DNC to demand a ceasefire from the Democratic Party. There were Democratic um, Congress folks in there whining and dining, I'm told, and it was there to make that demand for a ceasefire that um, we see in polls 80% of the Democratic Party wants and 66% of all Americans. And that was the main demand, and it was quite peaceful. That's something I really appreciate about groups like If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace. Despite being attacked and criticized by groups like the ADL, they have always, since the very beginning, 
have centered, mourned, grieved the loss of life from October 7th until today. Everybody. I would think that's a basic approach to, yeah. you know, the, the onset of this current war. Certainly not the history of the, the, the beginning of the conflict, but this current mm-hmm. iteration and current war really uh, uh, began escalating on October 7th. But since day one, they were holding space for everyone. And that's not, unfortunately, that's that's not common. So it is, it's really great to hear that they are continuing uh, centering both Israeli and Palestinian victims, because I think that's something we all should should do. I wish we could have seen that at, say, the March for Israel. By the way, were you were, did you go to the March for Israel? I, I, I did. I, I didn't post too much. I might have posted one or two clips. I, you know, I got out of my journalistic skin. I, I rarely do it. I rarely get out of my journalistic skin. But for the life of me, and I'm, I'm anti-Zionist Jew. You have to understand something. So there's a personal aspect to me. Um, I came out in 2014. I say I came out like a, a gay person says they're coming out, but it almost felt that way, right? I came out in 2014 with a 2014 massacre. And I was told as a Jew, I was told from parents and families that there's atrocities on both sides. You know, they, they, they were on that stuff. And I bought it. And I don't think I did the research I needed to do. And if you remember in 2014, there were 1,500 civilians who were Palestinians who were murdered and only six Israelis, 500 children to one, 500 children to one, 1,500 to six. And so I start looking at this data. I'm like, I go back to my family. I'm like, it don't seem like both sides to me. I'm just, I'm just talking about math here, right? Like, like I'm going to hit you with the math. In any other, if, if, if a team beat another team 15 to one in baseball, we say, hey, that's a massacre, right? This is the language we, we use. So when I started looking at objective facts, then it led me down a rabbit hole to look under other and learn more about Israeli apartheid, the conditions every day, speak to Palestinians. And it was a big deal for me because, um, it, you know, if you're Jewish, you grow up with a lot of lies. I, I don't want to say it's, it's like if you're American, you were taught Columbus discovered America, like nobody existed there. Like, well, it didn't really happen like that. Right. And it's the same. You were taught a lot of lies. So learning it is it's, it's, it takes an emotional change. It, there's, there's a learning process. And so I covered in 2014, it was a very different time that it was not popular to do so. I pretty much was like, I'm going to be independent media the rest of my life. Ain't no mainstream folks going to mess with me now. And, I, and that's fine. And I, and I started covering. And I started covering the last 10 years in D.C. And a lot of people don't believe there have been free Palestine protests the last 10 years in D.C. until now. People are paying attention. And, and now people are having that awakening that I believe that I had as a Jew in 2014. And more people are learning, but also, and this is where I think the Jewish point comes in, because while we always want to center Palestinian, I cover Palestinian protests, and I try to amplify their voices first and foremost, Jews have a, a very specific role, because if anyone who is not Jewish critiques the state of Israel and critiques the genocide that is happening, they're going to be called anti-Semitic, period, point blank. No matter how accurate the critique is, no matter how much the UN backs the critique, no matter how much human rights organizations back the critique, no matter what data you have, you're going to be called anti-Semitic, which doesn't mean I'm not called anti-Semitic or self-hating Jew. But if you're individual, they can do that. But when you have 2,000 people at the Grand Central Station, they're all Jews, and say, all right, are we all all anti-Semitic? When you on Monday have all these rabbis together, interfaith rabbis coming in and talking about not in our name, 
When you have uh, hundreds at the rotunda having an action of Jews saying, not in our name, never again means never again, not for Jews, but for any group. And that's the never again that I'm, I'm from. That's my learning. That's my teaching. That has a different resonance. So what is happening with the Jewish role is we are shattering the myth and the false narrative that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And we're trying to destroy that very deliberately because it's never been the case, not only that, the opposite is the case. As many Jews have talked about, true Judaism is not Zionism. I was, of course, upset and disgusted like everybody else, I'm sure, when I saw the clip of Van Jones speaking at this march, uh, even just mentioning like how he doesn't want to see any bombs dropped and the crowd responded by chanting no ceasefire. Uh, were you there for that? And how did that, how did that make you feel just seeing that? I would, so I'm on the outskirts. I generally, when I, when I cover protests, I know people are covering the speakers. I know that's going to be covered. So I, my style is always to try to cover people on the outside um, that I know that, you know, I could add to whatever else other people are seeing. So I heard very in short order about those boos. And when I told you earlier that I got out of my journalistic skin, I started dialoguing with Zionists. I just did. I couldn't hold it in. I was like, I put the phone down even, right? Let's just talk reasonably. Uh, like, I, I need to know if you think murdering babies is cool. Like, I, I, talk to me. Like, like a human to human, right? I, I couldn't help myself. Whereas normally I'm pretty professional as drum. Like, uh, it's about them. And I needed answers. And it was the most frustrating thing. I wasted my time. Because what ends up happening when you argue with Zionists is of one of three things. Either um, Israel's the holy land. Either Jerusalem's the holy land. God, God says so. And you're not going to argue with God. You're not going to win an argument with God in general. Like, it's just not a productive way to go. So that's number one. But number two is you end up arguing on facts. Like, facts. They believe um, um, Hamas had beheaded all these babies. Blah, blah, blah. So you're arguing about this story versus that story, debunk stories. So you're wasting time on arguing that because you're operating off different facts. Then you're operating off of every civilian casualty is Hamas's fault from, from what they're saying. Well, I don't know. This is what, let me show you some clips of what Israeli leadership said. Like, I'm not even going to the human rights report. I'm telling you, this is what Netanyahu said. This is what Isaac Herzog said, the president. This is what the defense minister said. He called them human animals right there in front of everyone at a press conference. We kept hearing this language of human animals, which messes with me as a Jew, because if you know your history, Jews were called vermin. Jews were called rats. Jews were dehumanized by Joseph Goebbels to justify um, a, a Holocaust. So you have to understand the psychology of that. When you dehumanize someone, now it's no longer a human rights crime because who you're killing is no longer human, you see? So in the mind, in the psychology of the oppressor, if you turn a human into an animal, you're not doing anything wrong. You're not, you're killing an ant. So I can't talk to people like that because at the end of the day, we're arguing facts, we're arguing different facts, and in, in every instance, that person will say, every single act by Israel is justified because of Hamas. It's Hamas's fault. Hamas made Netanyahu kill that baby on the West Bank. Hamas made the, them turn off the electricity and water and st uh, starve everyone to death. If you bring up the Geneva Convention, it doesn't matter. You bring up the UN, it doesn't matter. So I went down this rabbit hole, and boy, do I regret it. So you see, I'm venting to you right now as a result. <laughs> and... I'm never doing that again. I'm just not. <laughs> I'm not.
It was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in those in those chants, it really reflects the jingoism you're talking about, where our enemies or who we're told are our enemies are reduced to a subhuman level. It's definitely a theme we've talked about uh, on this show for now years because it's so prevalent in our foreign policy and unfortunately br- the broader West's foreign policy. And this event, the lineup, shows just how you know casual of a relationship they have with um your friend john uh, hagee your your good friend i was just getting there yeah yeah i was just gonna say but like the way they have weaponized accusations of anti-semitism against jewish protesters calling for a ceasefire but an actual documented anti-semite john hagee who uh let's see believed Adolf Hitler had fulfilled God's will by becoming a hunter driving Jews back to Israel and has and says hit and said Hitler came from a lineage of accursed genocidal murderous half-breed Jews and suggested that it was Jews disobedience toward God that led to their persecution he was welcome to speak at this rally so it's like you can be you can be an anti-semite as long as you're uh, a Zionist because it really yes. fulfills their, their, their project rather than yeah. tone policing, which they want you to think that they're doing. Well, there's Jewish white supremacy, which is Zionism essentially. And then there's um, Christian white supremacy. So you see there is a connection here. And that's why John Hagee, you know, John Hagee operates the Christians United for Israel. Now we talk about APAC a lot. I do it a lot, but Christians United for Israel is probably on par with APAC, if not more influential of evangelistic uh, Christians. So re- what what we're fighting right now, if we really want to get to the root of it, are three empires. And one are the, the sort of Israeli lobbies, like your APACs, um, that are really uh, 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 20 to 25% of hard right-wing Jews, Jews who have far greater power um, than, than the other 75% of, of Jews. You're also fighting evangelical Christians who want Israel... Um, who are Zionists for different reasons. I'm not going to get into it, but end of times and religion. They don't care about Jews either, but they, they're fine when they die. And then you have the military industrial complex with tying these three empires in a bow because the United States has military. there. That's what Joe Biden cares about. That's what Donald Trump cares about. They care about the missiles that are in Israel where they could kill Muslims whenever they want at any time. And they don't want to jeopardize that. Not only do they want to jeopardize that, and recently RFK Jr. actually spoke very publicly about what I'm just saying, very honestly, refreshingly honestly, as bad as it was, and was saying, hey, we got missiles there. This is important. So if there's going to be a genocide, there's going to be a genocide. But we got missiles there. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not far off. And um, this is what we're dealing with. So we have to understand the, the, the larger powers at work, and I say that also to say one other thing, because there is anti-Semitism in some of the um, the thinking. When I hear Jews control all of the media, Jews, co- that's actually not only is it anti-Semitic, it's like flat out wrong, and, and it's wrong because what you're doing is you're erasing the Christians for Israel. You're erasing the military-industrial complex. So all of these forces together control the media the same way the military-industrial complex controls so many other aspects of media that has nothing to do with Israel. That force exists, but they're tied with Israel. So when you tell me Jews control all the media and use Jews and conflate it with Israel or conflate it with AIPAC, which is a lobby, um, 
then what that tells me is um, you, you may have an anti-Semitic lens and, and we want to rid that lens as well. But I do want to say what one great thing that came out of it is now more Americans are understanding the Christian right-wing connection to Israel. And that is a good thing. So I grew up in a really hardcore Protestant setting uh, in, in the Midwest. And as a kid, and I eventually just kind of stopped caring very much about subscribing to a religion, just, you know, let everyone do what they want, just focus on actions. But I was always as a kid confused how we were told we have to support we have to support Israel. It's it's God's chosen people live there. And the Jews are God's chosen people. Oh, by the way, all the Jews are going to hell because they don't believe Jesus is the son of God. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's going on? How do you here? process that? You don't. There's. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you are in, I guess, in the church long enough and you just become willing to live a life where you're not questioning anything, sure, you could you can just accept it. But as even like a slightly inquisitive kid, it's like, that doesn't, this doesn't, you can't square these two. And like you were saying, it's really just in pursuit of this kind of apocalyptic end times mm. thing, because, you know, they, they think that this will ultimately bring about the second coming of Christ. Uh, so yeah. uh, good for them. Let them do what they want. As long as they're not hurting anyone. I don't, I don't care. But let's get, let's get back to the uh, the event the at the DNC. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I enjoyed that detour though. That was great. Yeah, there was a, a candlelight vigil, and yeah. how did they get? So did they? They went to the DNC headquarters and and linked arms. Yeah, we marched to the DNC. I was with the group that marched. It was already a group that was already there, and the group that was already there was holding ceasefire signs, singing songs. Um, so, you know, such as um, which side are you on, my people? They're nice singers, really nice voices. And it was melodic. I mean, it wasn't like like your hardest hitting protest. Right. And I've been at a, a, um, the last few weeks, a number of Jewish led protests by the thousands in D.C. And I've also been at, if not now, protests yearly. They would come down for APAC when there was an APAC conference, um, if not now. And other Jewish groups and, and Jewish Voice for Peace would protest them so it's not it's they're not brand new they've been doing this for a few years and it was it was so beautiful really and i think while i've been at many more violent protests in dc um certainly they during the george floyd movement there must have been 14 nights where there was tear gas deployed in june and july of, of 2020 um what was jarring about this is that in some of those times like you're braced yourself. You kind of know it's coming. You see them all in riot gear. You, you, you know, you mentally prepared that, you know, it's going to go down. Um, whereas this, it's like we just came on vigil, right? And people are singing in a really flowery, flowery way. And all of a sudden the police start pushing people at the top of the stairs. I think they took exception to the sign. They were trying to rip down the signs. They were trying to pull people's arms out of their sockets while who were at the top of the stairs. I saw one woman get thrown down the stairs. I filmed it as well. I had a, a pretty good position to film. I was looking for a high spot. And it just, it mayhem happened. And the may, and pepper spray, right? They had pepper spray and they used their pepper spray um, multiple times. I didn't get there. Someone else had photos of that pepper spray. And I think, you know, if you watch the video, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, and yet people are saying, you know, other things happened. So like, like, like even police, if you, their statement, CNN reprinted a statement 
which is police stenography. We don't call that journalism. We call it police stenography, right? And they reprinted a statement, and multiple officers are being treated for wounds and being pepper sprayed. Oh, okay, okay. Pepper sprayed by who? Who pepper sprayed you? Where did that pepper spray come from? Well, I'll tell you where it came from. If you've been around pepper spray, it's very hard in a crowd to pepper spray one person. You're hitting other people. You get side pepper spray. It hurts your eyes. You're rubbing your eyes. And they hit cops, pepper spray other cops. That's what happened. So if they were being treated for pepper spray, they need to say they were, it looks like the other cops caught some of the pepper spray from the other cops. But this is the language and the manipulation, very similar to police-involved shooting. What does that mean, police-involved shooting? Who shot who? The police shot the person. This is police language, it's passive language. So it's police-initiated violence. We have to be clear, police-initiated pepper spray. So this is what happened. These are the facts, but as you well know, our politicians and media did a different spin. We very quickly started seeing tweets from Democratic uh, members of Congress who were in the building at the time, and then later Republicans who ran to Democrats' defense because they saw this as an opportunity to attack protesters and ultimately attack any calls for a ceasefire. But Democrats inside, they had, there was a few comments. We had to be evacuated after yeah. they tried to storm the building. They, we saw comparisons to January 6th. There was an anonymous quote that said, uh, this, this was scarier than January 6th. <laughs> now, as someone who you know is familiar, maybe you were there, but is familiar I was, with January I was on the lawn. I was on the lawn January 6th. I mean, I, I, got, I got footage of, of, of rioters breaking hundreds of thousands of dollars of CNN equipment and, and AP equipment. I, I know what a riot looks like, right? Yeah. This wasn't that. This was a vigil. Could you talk about how disconnected the narratives were from Democratic officials to what you saw right there on oh, yeah. the ground? Well, first, Brad Sherman says they tried to enter the building. That's not true. You know, that, that's absolutely not true. They're outside the building. All the videos show it. They're holding a line to, to stop the entrance to the building, but they weren't trying to go in the building. And that's when police went up. He said, um, protesters pepper spray. No, that did not happen. Police are the only people that have pepper spray. And I am someone who's covered like hundreds of, I can't even count anymore. I don't even know if it's a little bit, thousands. I've covered a lot and, and I've covered every single variety. I've been at some of the hardcore protests where like, I know if someone gets pepper sprayed, they may have pepper spray on them and might pepper spray. But I've been at those um, where they're going to have that self-defense. This wasn't that crowd. I I'm telling you right now, this wasn't that crowd at all. And um, no one had pepper spray except the police. So that was another lie. Um, they have to be evacuated. For what? For what? And, and there were police everywhere. It was so unnecessary. So they, they created a story that doesn't exist. And what I find the most interesting is that the Democrats have prided themselves in calling Donald Trump a pathological liar, which he is, by the way. They're not wrong, at least domestically. He is a pathological liar domestically. And what he would do is when you charge him with something where you had factual evidence that he was wrong, he would just say stuff and his followers would come along. That's exactly what the Democrats are doing right now. That's exactly what Brad Sherman's doing right now. That's exactly what Joe Biden is doing right now. But when repeating debunked lies over and over about he had babies and other stories, that's what they're doing. I think a little bit of the difference is more Democrats are saying, no, we, we, we know you're lying and we're not going to follow your lies. You know what? If you're going to be genocidal, Joe, we ain't voting for you. And if you think that's a problem, 
well, then maybe you should be running a candidate that's not pro-genocide. I don't know. Just just think about that. Maybe the Democratic Party might want to run a candidate that is not pro-genocide. I don't think it's a big ass. This is a, a tall order. Um, and, and that's the feeling. Another claim that I thought was really funny came from Democratic Majority for Israel. These are big... Uh, big spenders to try to unseat members of the squad and who try to stop any progressive challengers, especially these progressive candidates, uh, if they're critical of Israel or U.S. foreign policy toward Israel. Now, they said, does any real Democrat want to side with these violently, with those violently assaulting the Democrats' headquarters building with a video of cops forcibly pulling protesters away from the door. Jordan, you know who took that video? Was that yours? That was my video (laughs) that they took and repurposed the language. Like, they stole it, and I wrote a police attacking protesters. And they wrote what you just said. And (laughs) after I saw that, I was like, I can tell them to take it down. It's my video. I can go and take it down. But the actual video contradicted their tweet. Yeah. Like completely. So I wrestled with it. I asked a couple people and they said, oh, leave it up. The actual video contradicts their t- tweet. There are other people who said it doesn't matter. People ain't going to even look at the video that that contradicts the tweet. But yeah, it, it's madness that you have the video right there and nothing that they say is true in the video. But is the building okay? Or, like, <laughs> are, are any <laughs> the... <laughs> oh, then there's that. Thank you for that, Jordan. Thank you for that. Cause, no, cause I, I'm very concerned about the headquarters of the DNC. Maybe some of the brick, a brick got roughed up or something. Yeah, that's not. I've been. I couldn't sleep last night. I couldn't sleep last night. I mean, yeah, we lost about eleven thousand civilians in Palestine, but once that brick on the DNC building got smudged a little bit, that really got me going. Uh, there was, you know, there were comparisons, also. Uh, this in this case from Jake Oshenslas, who uh, at one point complained that he couldn't burn the Quran, but that's a different story. Uh, he compared that this event last night to the March for Israel, over hundred thousand people rallying for justice without incident. And as somebody who has you know covered protests, when you look at the you know the March for Israel, basically saying, "Thank you, government, keep doing what you're doing," versus this vigil uh, into a peaceful, you know, locking of arms on the, on the stairs, criticizing what the government is doing as again, as somebody who's covered hundreds and hundreds of protests, you see an escalation from the police when you are critical of the state or the government, you know, you see state violence when you are critical, they're not going to attack you. If you're saying, Hey, thanks, keep it up. It's just, it, it, that seems so simple to me, but people don't seem to understand why there would be a different response here versus on, on Tuesday. It was police-initiated violence. Police initiated, yeah. That's why it's violence. So when people are like, was it more violence? Yeah, police-initiated violence. I was sat, I filmed someone, a police officer reached across about two feet to grab a Palestinian flag, pulled it at the property out of his hand, and threw it down. That's what a police officer did on camera. It wasn't like in his face. It wasn't over the line. The police officer reached over and I think felt that was symbolic for the whole protest. If that man had an Israeli flag, there wouldn't the police wouldn't have acted that way. And that's the symbolic the whole protest. But you know what? That's like the second point. Here's the biggest point that I think a lot of those people are missing. That Wednesday was the most pro-violence rally I've ever seen in my life. Because when, when Van Jones said, we want a ceasefire, as you mentioned, and everyone said, no ceasefire. How can you call 
thousands of people cheering on genocide, cheering on bombs, cheering on murder of children, cheering on no electricity, cheering on displacement from homes, and not be the most violent spectacle you've ever seen. It is barbarity masquerading as civility. And we got to be clear about what that is. And the protest that was the other day, that was a beautiful protest. But I believe that dynamic of barbarity and civility perfectly encapsulates what the Democratic Party and Joe Biden is. He might talk nicer than Trump, but the, the policies are, are horrific. The policies are genocidal. And I've always said Trump's bigotries, Trump's bigotry comes straight out of his mouth. Biden's bigotry comes straight out of his budget. And that is always the case. You pointed out how the police use kind of sneaky tactics to try to bait protesters into an opportunity that they could exploit to escalate. And there was one video you posted uh, of them walking their bikes extremely close to protesters. Could you talk? Because it's kind of hard to convey to somebody who hasn't seen it. Yeah. How they use these kind of tactics to just try to incite violence. Right. And it's funny when that happened at the time, at the moment in real time, I tweeted, uh oh, the police, the bike cops are hugging us. This feels like a George Floyd protest. They hadn't done that in any of the protests yet. Any of the protests since October 7th. There was actually one Palestinian one by the Israeli embassy at night. I take that back. And that was because I was Palestinian led in that night. Certainly none of the Jewish protests. So this is the first time any of the Jewish protests, where Jewish protests are kind of treated with kid gloves. Even when they were mass arrested, it was like, here, give you a plastic tie, have some milk and cookies, and we'll let you go in a couple hours. I mean, and that was done purposefully because they didn't want the um, anti-Zionism um, Jew story to get out. That was done strategically. But this, when the way I saw the, it, the way it was being hugged, I said, this is, this is the greatest predictor of police-initiated violence later on. And sure enough, that's what happened. And we know that every George Floyd protester knows that, particularly at night, because we saw that hugging more ha happen more at night um, during the George Floyd protest. People think it was a month. It was eight months. Like there's a whole eight months. At some point I might have a documentary on it because nobody knows. But it was eight months and they would hug you to the left and to the right. And I'm like, uh oh, we know what that means. That means they're itching. They're aggressive. They, they got the kind of the green light if they want to rough you up. They got the green light. And they also had, um, to me, was kind of clear a somewhat of a stand down order not to do mass arrest as well, because they took people where they would normally arrest them and they threw them back into the crowd. So I, I, I believe they did not want to make a sometimes that's privilege, but I don't think that's what it was yesterday. I think sometimes they don't want to make a spectacle of violent arrest of anti-Zionist Jews. Um, at the DNC, because that could be you know, harmful to the DNC and harmful to this, this ongoing narrative. But yes, that's a predictor. You, and if you cover enough protests, you know what the predictors are. Do you think this represents uh, maybe, uh, certainly an escalation from the police, but maybe from the Democrats or either the local government or officials or police chiefs or whatever? Because it, it, like you said, this hasn't happened as often as it had in other moments. But do you think they're just really trying to quash this pro-ceasefire, pro-Palestinian movement? Is that what it re reads like to you? I, it, it does, and I believe they're desperate, and I believe they made a tactical error. And, and when I say I believe they made a tactical error, um, people have to understand something about D.C. police that I didn't at first. 
I, I spent months in Ferguson. And for whatever it was worth, Ferguson were kind of bumbling cops, right? They weren't ready. They weren't ready for all that. And they treated everyone the same. So everyone got a taste of what it was like to be a young black youth living in Ferguson daily. The harassment they dealt with daily, the oppression with daily, the pulled over being daily. But if you were a protester, you were from out of town, you could get this tear gas too. Your white people join these black kids, you could get some too. Oh, you're Wesley Lowry, you write for the Washington Post, or Ryan Riley, you write for the Huffington Post, you could get some too. We'll rough you up at McDonald's. And they did just that. And that actually helped the counter movement against Ferguson. I think Wesley Lowry went on a tear at Washington Post. They gave him the green light at the time, and they were doing some really good work. They haven't really done much good work since he left. But the point I'm, I'm making is that it was in your face. D.C. police are very different. They're duplicitous. They're militaristic. They're strategic. During George Floyd, they write Black Lives Matter on the plaza. They take pictures on the plaza, the police and people. And at midnight, one in the morning, and there were some people who were you know, intense there, they beat you. They literally beat you. And the way I got into covering overnights wasn't just like, oh, maybe I should cover overnight. It went something like, am I allowed to curse here or no? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. can. It, it was something like this. Chuck and other people, you need to stop going home at fucking 11 p.m. because they're fucking us up when all the media leaves at one, 1 in the morning, at 2 in the morning, and y'all are going home, and you're not catching. Our phones are dead outside and all this. Like, I was chewed out. I said, all right. I'm, I was fortunate enough that I have a, I have a separate job. I don't get paid. All the, every, everything I do is for free. So I have a separate job, and I, I, was, I had the luxury during COVID to move some things around. I said, I'm going to pull some overnights. And sure enough, that was true, but it was also preventive. When me and another journalist move to overnight, they start changing their tactics. So they have different tactics for different um, ways, and they're very mindful of optics, So which, which is why I'm somewhat surprised, because I think yesterday kind of worked against them. It wouldn't have worked against them if it was a Palestinian rally. It wouldn't have worked against them if it was a George Floyd rally. But they're fucking with white Jews now. You understand? That's a little different. That's a little different, those optics. So um, in some way, they didn't, you know, they're desperate. They, they didn't expect this uprising. They've always had control of the narrative, but it's they've never seen anything like this at a mass international level, and the young people know what's going on. Absolutely. You mentioned it earlier uh, with the police stenography comment, but I would like to get into how irresponsible it was for, it seemed like every cable news network yeah. To immediately run with Brad Sherman's story. I mean, he's a big recipient of APAC money, big proponent uh, of the U.S. foreign policy and relationship with Israel. Certainly is no, nowhere near uh, calling for a ceasefire. But immediately ran with his narrative and others, and that echoed into coverage today. Could you talk about how irresponsible it was for them just to accept the, the police framing, the Democratic majority for Israel framing, and just people who were online trying to spin it who weren't there. Like I'm sure you saw yeah. people trying to argue with Dave Weigel, who also was there, yeah. and him yeah. just being flabbergasted that people were trying to tell him what he saw didn't happen, but yeah. the inverse happened. It's 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 maddening. I understand why corporate media does. I understand where everyone's bread is buttered. I get it. Um, if they did what uh, I was doing, what Dave was doing, they wouldn't still be working there. You know, um, let me just say something. I um. So I was doing sports writing for New York Daily News um, for a few years. And every once in a while, I would write something outside. I had to go to a different department. I had a great editor. The editor knew what I was about. Let me write what I was about. Only edited grammatically, not content-wise. And if you're ever lucky to get an editor like that, then you're just really lucky. And it doesn't always last. 
So I went to another fight, covered Charlottesville, and I now have follow-up stories on the mother of DeAndre Harris, who's a young black kid who was beat up by by white supremacists. And I send it, I, I got some great quotes in there, right? Great, great quotes from her. And they had softened all these quotes. Went to another department, they softened all the quotes. And another time I wrote an article and they say, okay, it's our policy to say what the police said. And I said, well, why is it the policy if, if, if we objectively look at the history of police statements, there is littered with lies. And I said that objectively, like if you look at any statement after a video comes out, whether it's, you know, George Floyd died of medical injuries or Walter Scott uh, pulled a gun and then the video came out three days later and the police report are all lies. Like, anytime those, the video comes out a few days later, it always contradicts the police report. Like, we have to understand police are professional liars. Like, that, that, that's what they do. That's what they're trained to do. It's not like an anomaly. It's part of your job description. And, and people don't understand that. So when my editor says, well, you have to have a police statement, I didn't win the battle. I put in a line or two. And I had to do it, and, and and I say that to say, the, the institutionally, even if an individual journalist didn't want to do something, a lot of times, they're forced to. So I, I do have love for some of the journalists who push the envelope in those spaces to as far it can it can go. I'm not going to knock them. I think there there is some space for that. Is it, it doesn't really work for me, but. You have to do that. So journalism institutionally messed up. When I say I've just as journalist in my title, I mean that in a way in a tradition of if you look at, um, you know, marginalized group like Ida B. Wells is my hero. Right. Ida B. Wells, who was probably America's greatest investigative journalist, covered lynching like no one else. Her home was getting bombed. Right. Like this is what she was dealing with. And and she didn't say there's two sides to lynching. She said lynching was wrong. And I'm going to tell you why it's wrong. It, it's oppressive. You know, Frederick Douglass, people forget, he was the editor of the North Star, an anti-slavery newspaper, which was huge. He was a media person as uh, for, for years. He didn't say there was two sides to slavery. He said, slavery is wrong. I'm going to educate you why. So the, the, the whole both sides thing that many journalists get in, in school, they get that from a place of power and privilege. Just doing both sides is oppression. But there's a great history of real journalism, justice journalism, journalism, liberatory journalism. And there are many great people going to Shireen uh, Akla, I messed up her name, Shireen, who was murdered by the IDF earlier, or was it last year, earlier this year, and we know it was murdered. You know, trying to expose the truth that's in Palestine. We have a great history of journalists trying to expose the truth. And when you are talking about crimes against humanity, when you're talking about genocide or slavery or a Jim Crow apartheid or South African apartheid or Israeli apartheid, there ain't two sides. And presenting two sides is biased journalism. You sorry for the rant. No, it's okay. I appreciate it. But you see, like you see why even just pausing or questioning just show evidence when Brad Sherman and the Capitol Police are saying, oh, six officers were injured for pepper spray and small lacerations. Yes. That reads like they got scratched and there was friendly fire with, with the pepper spray. Yeah. And then yeah. today we have a full accounting from Jewish Voice for Peace, which listed and detailed how 90 of their protesters were injured, including being hit with bicycles, violently choked, thrown, knocked to the ground. And then when you look at the videos, OK, yes, it is objective who escalated which side was more violent 
and why taking Brad Sherman, who was not outside, taking his word at face value was irresponsible. But it goes back to what you were saying. The role the media plays in selling this, certainly not a media that's, quote, controlled by Jews, absolutely not, but a media that firmly sits in this larger apparatus to sell the priorities of the military-industrial complex, hugely influential and moneyed political interests, not exclusive to APAC. APAC is one of them. Of course, but of course. Corporate, corporate interests, oil interests, you know, the, it's, it's all – it's just Pentagon who is the, yeah absolutely it's it's certainly not the jews controlling it it is who has power in this country and that is a wide array of entities and interests and people and this is the role the corporate media plays which is why it's so important that people like you people like weigel were out there documenting it so jewish voice for peace so if not now so people who were there in solidarity have their their voices amplified in an accurate uh, detailed yeah. storytelling provided for people. So I, re- I really, really appreciate it. Uh, is there anything else you want you want to include or mention that you saw or think is worth noting? Um, I think you you captured uh, most of the day. You know the Palestinian flag. I think um, I interviewed a lot of people. I, I I probably didn't get out half the interviews. I'm gonna try to get out the rest. That's the story of my life, though. I apologize to everybody who gave me their time to to interview, and I haven't got you understand how that goes. I mean, it's like you you beat yourself up because someone gave you their 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 whole heart and chest, and you didn't get to it yet, and you got to go work. But I want to get these videos out. And I the last thing I want to say is that I had a, a couple great conversations when it got lighter and great interviews with anti-Zionist Jews, and. I, and, and it went something, a, a few conversations I've had in the last couple of weeks is that it feels so good to be seen, right? We, we know Palestinians are marginalized on TV. We're not going to hear their opinion. That's horrible. And we, talk, we have to talk about that. We know Muslims in general, we're not going to hear their opinion. Um, there was also a, uh, a study of New York Times articles and uh, Jews who wrote it versus Palestinians. It was like, I don't know, 30 to 1. It was crazy, right? It was just completely disproportional. But another part is that's missing is anti-Zionist Jews. We don't see them on TV. We don't see a Jew who's anti-Zionist argue, debate a Jew who's Zionist on TV. That, that doesn't happen. So you're written out. And what happens is you're isolated. I had a, I was interviewing someone and he said, I felt shame. I felt isolated. And no matter what, I know I was right. And now I see thousands of people in front of my face like me. So I think what is happening with anti-Zionist Jews is that they've always been there, but you didn't know where your community was. You didn't see them all in one place. And what this movement has done has brought out anti-Zionist Jews in mass to say, wow, I have support. I'm not an anomaly. Not only that, you could argue we're the majority when you talk about around the world. Um, I don't know how you take studies about stuff like this. But so that is a good thing that is coming out of this. And you're seeing some real solidarity um, across Palestinian and Jews and Jewish lines. And most importantly, shattering the lie that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And the best people to do that are Jews themselves. Chuck, really, really appreciate your time and your work. Where can people follow you? And find more of your 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 content. Hey, listen, I would appreciate the space, um, Jordan. We at this time, like yourself, we need all independent media 
to coalesce in a way because we're going against billion dollar empires. And I'm sure you know that and that's why you're doing what you're doing. So right now I'm posting it at ChuckmoD1 and I'm sort of laser focused on where we are now because it's a preventable genocide and people are dying every day. I'm focused on in a, in a level of urgency that I almost can't say I've had for any other protest. Um, that and when I wasn't right here right now, Stop Cop City is the other major area that I'm focusing on because that's another form of fascism and not a disconnected form of fascism either. Absolutely. And topic that we have also covered on the show uh, a lot. Chuck, thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. Really appreciate it.